I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. The Long Game with LZ and Leach. Welcome to the last episode of The Long Game with LZ and Leach from The Recount, where for the last eight months, we've been talking about the biggest stories in sports and how they impact culture, politics, and business. I'm the eternally optimistic Lakers fan, LZ Granderson. He's the eternally um, pessimistic no. Lakers hater, Will Leach. <laughs> I'm eternally optimistic about everything. It's like one of the stupidest things about me. This is the last episode of The Long Game with LZ and Leach. We'll get all emotional about that a little bit later. But for now, since this is the last episode of this show, I'm going to break out of our usual format because why not, right? <laughs> like, could, why don't we just make this whole thing about our favorite species of gerbil? We're going to break our usual format, and we're going to get kind of go through some personal wish lists, like what we most want to see happen in sports, in the world, in our personal lives. As a send-off to you, our loyal listeners, you get to hear us talk about what we individually want. You're welcome. <laughs> I think my list begins and ends with winning the lottery. There's a documentary that came out a few years ago that followed people after they won the lottery. Like 10 years later, their lives were unequivocally worse. They found out all their friends actually were just looking for them for money. They actually didn't care about them. It was a really bad situation. I want a chance to be in that documentary. There's only one way to find out, right? I feel like it's like the prequel to my Brewster's Millions. That's what I want to have happen. Where <laughs> nice I have to spend th- I have to say, that movie is, I suspect, one of those movies I worry has not aged well, but I loved it as a kid. All right. So here is how we're going to organize our finale. First, we're going to present the thing that we want most in any sport to happen next, whether it's a team winning a championship, whether it's a happy ending for for a great player, just something in the world of sports that we wish to have happen until I meet you again, LZ, because you have not heard the last of me. Oh, damn it. That's not what the contract says. (laughs) Then we'll both offer up one change we would like to see happen in the world. And we'll make it happen, too, because we have that kind of power, as you can tell by the fact that this is our last episode of the podcast. Well, it's our last episode because we needed more time to make the change happen, Will. Exactly. Be the change you want to see in the world. (laughs) And then to close out, we will talk about something that's just personal. Like One of the many great things about doing this podcast is it's always felt like a personal endeavor rather than just a professional endeavor. We'll talk about one thing we'd love to see in our lifetime, a sports-happy thing that will hopefully come down before we meet again. Can I offer up winning the lottery again, or can I not reuse that? You can use that. But I got to tell you, though, this is going to be a really bummer of a last podcast if literally everyone is like, oh, winning the lottery. Yeah, that's that's my wish. That's, that's, that's what it all comes down to. Yeah, that and pain <laughs> for my enemies. What more is there, honestly? Then we'll wrap up with our This Week in Sports History segment, but Will and I are not going to go back in time. No, 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 no. This time, we're just going to focus on the events of today, May 24th, 2022, 
the day that this show ended and will soon become a part of history. We'll look back on what the long game has meant to both of us and where we want to take things going forward. And we're going to turn the cameras off for that in case it gets a little misty in here. All right, but before we get into that, LZ, let's do our final time I get to ask this question, at least until whatever we do together next. What is your sports mood today? Wee oui, wee, oui, monsieur. Wee oui, wee. Oui. <laughs> the French Open. Oh, right. Sorry. <laughs> I, just, I, I was like, dude, you, you, why didn't you go before the podcast? What's the problem? <laughs> I'm like really, really in a good space because the French Open has started. And it's one of my favorite tennis tournaments, not just Grand Slams. No, 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 no. Tennis tournaments, period. Because clay, for those who don't know, is the hardest surface to play on because the surface is constantly moving. And you never know which direction the ball is going to go because it's landing on a surface that is constantly moving and you're sliding and it's dirty and it's hot and it's grimy and it is so freaking intense. I personally enjoy playing on clay, but I don't do it very often. So I guess I like visiting clay, but I've never actually <laughs> lived there. During the French Open, it's where you see guys and gals who love the hard surfaces or grass be humbled by the moving surface that is the red clay of Roland Garros. Obviously, Rafael Nadal is one of the favorites. Novak Djokovic, Alcaraz, blah, 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 blah. This isn't about who's going to win. This is simply about how they choose to lose. Because at the French Open, there is nothing more disappointing to me than watching a favorite lose while being completely dirty. It's one thing to lose clean, but when you lose with a filthy outfit on, it just makes losing even worse. I love the French Open. My buddy John Isner won his first match. We were texting right afterwards. I complimented him on his pink shorts. I hope he does well. <laughs> I mean, it's just such a fun event. And I, for one, am just really just in a good space, despite the fact that this is the last episode of this podcast. Mm -hmm. The French Open just puts me in such a good mood that it helped nullifies a little bit of the pain. What about you, Will? Yeah, yeah, I like weird stuff like the French Open. There have been times I've wanted to go to the organizers of the French Open and be like, you know, they have like grass courts now. <laughs> like they can make them. Like, no, they don't no, have no. to play on this, right? Like the society has evolved to where they mow it regularly. Like you'll, <laughs> and I like weird things in sports like that. I always liked when Houston, when it used to be Enron Field, had a literally in center field, a hill and a flagpole. Like, I just like, like randomly <laughs> difficult things that mess with the natural order of things. I wouldn't want them for everything, but I do like the idea, you know, I think this is one thing that tennis, I really like about tennis, that I feel like football misses a little bit. I think baseball has as well. I think basketball misses this a little bit too. The idea of the, like, where you play, the physical field you play on makes a huge, huge difference as to who wins the game. Whereas in football, they're pretty much the same. Like maybe it's colder in one place and maybe right. one place is the dome. But in tennis, it's like, no, today we're playing on quicksand. Fuck it. It's just quicksand. <laughs> kind like, of. Who are we kidding here? It's quicksand. And there's something kind of incredible about that that I always kind of enjoy. Uh, my sports food, this will be one of two Cardinals references on uh -oh. this podcast. We have reached the point of the summer. I just turned in my next novel. I just turned it in, so it's off my congratulations. back. Congratulations. No, I mean, I, well, congratulations to my editor comes back with it. He's like, yeah, this is horrible. There's no way we can publish this thing at all. And then life is terrible. But until then, I'm going to pretend he's not going to do that. So I am, for the first time, trying to actually, you know, enjoy myself a little bit. It's like staying up a little later, having a couple extra drinks uh, while watching a baseball game. I am very much loving not just my St. Louis Cardinals, 
But we've reached that part of the summer where the NBA finals, like we're very close to the NBA finals. That's about to kick off. And then there's like the WNBA and there's the tennis tournaments. I think some horses are still racing or something. There is no golf. Golf does not exist. Golf is not a real sport. I can say that now. Uh, it's the last show. Fuck it. Your sport is stupid. <laughs> um, but more to the point, you may have noticed this talking to me on this podcast for eight months, Elsie. I am not inherently a relaxed person. I am not good at uh, casual me time. Usually the space after Memorial Day till about the 4th of July is about as relaxed as I get. So I'm just going to sit back and try to enjoy a particularly potentially pretty good Cardinals team with a lot of exciting young players and uh, drink a couple extra bourbons every night and drink through my pain of uh, the end of the show. Is Albert Pujols one of those young players you're looking forward to seeing? Uh, <laughs> compared to me, yes, <laughs> he is young. I've never quite, I mean, we've talked about this before, but I've never quite wrapped my mind around the fact that like Albert Pujols, like the oldest player in baseball, a guy you worry will get hit with a line drive and his bones will shatter into a million pieces. A guy that runs as if he is running in a dream <laughs> and is unable to get somewhere. That guy is four years younger than I am. That is a hard thing to wrap my <laughs> mind around, uh, to say the very least. Okay, LZ, let's move on to our first big topic, the things we want to see happen in sports, maybe even the teams we want to see win a championship next. Norwood assumes the position. Lingner waits to snap it. We wait. There's a snap. There's a kick. It is up. It is. No good. Norwood missed. Four seconds left. The Giants have won Super Bowl 25. You just heard the late, great, and hero to a 10-year-old Will Leach, Jack Buck, calling what has since become known as Wide Right, one of the most famous moments in pro football history. When back in 1991, Buffalo Bills kicker Scott Norwood missed a 47-yard field goal in the last seconds of Super Bowl 25, giving the New York Giants a thrilling 20-19 victory. The Bills would go on to play in three consecutive Super Bowls after that one, famously losing them all. And as the bad luck of a cursed franchise would have it, they've not been back since. Now, LZ, in this segment, we're choosing the team we hope will win a championship next, or the just the good sports thing that we're hoping will happen until you and I meet again in this podcast or the next. And since this clip gives away my selection... I should probably start off first. No, I'm not looking for the Giants to win another one. Screw that. I want to see the Buffalo Bills finally nab their first NFL title. This what? one to Yeah, I'm telling you, this was to me, this is a little bit of a no-brainer. I am a sucker. Let's get right into it. I've got like a little script thing, but screw it. Let's start talking. I used to write this series for Sports on Earth, my old site. It was tortured fan base rankings. And we did it for all the three major sports, NBA, NFL, the ones I knew well enough, NBA, NFL, MLB. So whoever won the championship the year before was the least tortured team all the way back down. In football, I think there's always been a big four. Bills, Browns, Vikings, Lions. Those are like the big four, like whatever order you want to put those in. To be a tortured fan base, like the Jaguars haven't won one, but who cares? The Jaguars don't really have a lot of fans. <laughs> Here's the qualifications. This team has extraordinarily been good, but never gotten over the top, has a deep, loyal fan base, and has been doing this for like a long time. I usually have the Lions fourth in that, just because they're usually worse than the other three teams. <laughs> so, and uh, But they certainly have a great fan base. But to me, the Bills are the one, because the Bills, in a lot of ways, 
are this last thing left of this of this once quite proud city. I say that with apologies to my father-in-law, who is also there. So he's also a, also a part of this great of this great city. But I always love teams that go a long that go a long time without winning a title and have a fans that stick with them throughout it no matter what and finally get rewarded. So I feel like in the NFL, those are the teams, Browns, Bills, Lions, Vikings. In baseball, it was generally the Cubs and the Guardians. The Cubs have now now gotten, I think those are the teams like the Mariners, you could argue, or the Astro, or the Brewers, excuse me. And the NBA, the Suns would probably be pretty high on that list of a team that never quite did it. But to me, the emotional aspect of the Buffalo Bills winning the Super Bowl, and they're one of the favorites to potentially do so this year, there's something that, I always joke that before the Cubs won the World Series, there were very few stories that would get you on the front page of Time Magazine. Now, who cares about Time Magazine anymore? But the idea, like sports stories that cross over into the real world that are not about scandal, that are just about happy things. The Cubs winning the World Series did that. I would argue the Buffalo Bills do that as well. The Browns would also do it. I have this famous story of, uh, I interviewed a guy who's the family of a guy who died, when he died in his obituary, he said, I, uh, in his obituary, he said he wants his pallbearers to be the Cleveland Browns so they can let him down one last time. There's a certain dedication <laughs> that I respect there. But the Deshaun Watson thing puts me the Browns slightly one down in the Bills. So for me, I'd love to see the Bills win a Super Bowl. They're a franchise whose fan base, I think, has very well earned it. I, I, I can see that. And yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that, that would be cool, you know, as long as my Rams or my Lions aren't suffering losses just so uh-huh. the Bills can get a freaking championship. The, the, tor- yeah, the, the tortured Los Angeles Rams. Definitely last yes. place in the yes. tortured yes. Very tortured. Series. Very tortured. Yes. We haven't yes. repeated ever. Yeah. So, you know. Listen, the Lions, they haven't repeated ever. Look at you. Uh, <laughs> uh, the Lions, to me, are, are again, are right up there. I, they, I, I think they're definitely one of those four teams, too. For sure. For sure. And I did think about you know, selecting them as my team, obviously as a Detroit Lions fan, as someone who's born and raised in Detroit, it would be awesome to finally get the Detroit Lions. To be honest with you, I would be happy we just got to the Super Bowl. Yeah. yeah. Fuck the result. Let's yeah, just, just get, get there. So Lions is going to be a little weird, but I want you to just kind of go with me on this for a second. Fair enough. I want LAFC to win a title. LAFC. Mm-hmm. From MLS. Yeah, I know. Right now, (laughs) they are the number one team. They have the most points as of uh, this recording with 26 in the league. Assuming that they can maintain the the pace of play, they may very well end up with the best record in the league again. Because we've had the best record before. And we've fallen short multiple times. Now, we started out out the gate, you know, surprising everyone by being a pretty good team. But now we're starting to go through the groin pains. We fired our previous coach. People are starting to wonder if we're a regular season team with no postseason real threats because we haven't done it in the postseason yet. And we all know in every sport, the postseason is different than a regular season. But the real reason why I want LEFC to win a title is because I want that franchise to be rewarded for doing it the right way. And this is what I mean. Before they even broke ground, the owners of the soccer franchise went to the community and asked, what do they want? What do you want in a stadium? What do you want in a team? Everything right down to the design of the uniforms was a community decision. It wasn't like these rich you know, billionaires coming in from on high and deciding what's best for a community. No, they went to the community and asked, what do they want? And you know what really was crazy, Will? They actually went and did it. <laughs> they actually listened to yeah. the fan base. 
a fan base they had to actually build. So they go to the community and say, hey, we have one soccer team in the Los Angeles area, the Galaxy, very successful, star-studded. I mean, David fucking Beckham played yeah. for the Galaxy for <laughs> heaven's sakes, right? Like, star-studded, blah, blah, blah. But it was in one part of the city. Los Angeles, being the second largest in the country, as you can imagine, is a very large city that can accommodate multiple soccer teams, just like it accommodates multiple basketball teams. And if you count the Angels, I guess, multiple baseball teams. But I don't really <laughs> yeah. count the Angels. And yeah. apparently neither does the mayor, because he had to resign for a you know, whatever. Look it up. If you count the galaxy, galaxy are far, are far out there too. So they if you're, if you're mean, counting them, if you're counting them, you got to count it. Right, right, right. It is kind of far. But LAFC, they're located right downtown, right next to basically USC's campus. Mm-hmm. It's right really next to the, more, the Coliseum, right? It's right next to Coliseum, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and it's really hard to go to an LAFC game without seeing LA at its finest and at its worst. Obviously, there are staples there and all the history or crypto.com or wherever the hell you know, the <laughs> name now. is now. But, right. you know, and SC and all the great history. So there's there's already in the area a sense of championship fever. But you also have to see the poverty that's there. You also have to see the uh, the homelessness has been a longstanding issue for the city for, for many, many years. And it's progressively gotten worse. You get to see it all to go to these games. So you're not being taken out into some bubble. No. This is L.A. And the fact that they went to the community, they talked to the community, they built the team to please the community, and the stadium is in the heart of the community where you have to see what everyone else is see to enjoy these games and think about what it means to live in Los Angeles. I just think they did everything right. And the only thing they need to, to validate doing everything right is a championship. Otherwise, you, you kind of went through all of that and if you're just a disappointment like any other franchise, then it's kind of hard to feel like you're really doing it right. But to build a fan base from the ground up, do the right things in terms of stadium and donating to the right community organizations and establishing community organizations. And when there were anti-gay slurs being chanted by the crowd, you didn't pretend like you didn't hear them. No, you address them head on and then you let people know this is a space for everyone. And if you don't want to be a part of an organization that is for everyone, then we don't want you. And they did not hesitate to say that. And I just loved everything about it. So I want Carlos Vela and the boys to finally hoist a trophy to prove that you can actually be a dominant team, win a bunch of games, have the MVP, have a gorgeous stadium, please the community, and, oh, by the way, still be a fucking boss and win a championship. So, LAFC, I'm hoping this is the year, baby. Oh, wow, you, almost, you almost turned me into an LFC, LAFC fan. Uh, <laughs> that. Uh, as an Atlanta United guy, I would argue they are also, they do have a billionaire owner, but uh, they are also an MLS team that has generally done it the right way. I'm talking to you during election day uh, here in Georgia and I, yes, all are. that comes with that. And so the idea that the... Atlanta United team has embraced Atlanta, the city, as opposed to what the Braves have done and what Burnett? we've seen. Uh, <laughs> yes, in Sprout and Smyrna. And, uh, and I, I would argue they have been rewarded accordingly. If you were to talk about what teams represent Atlanta, as opposed to some theoretical suburban idea of Georgia, it's the Hawks and Atlanta United in a way that I think is inspiring. And I love going to Atlanta United games. I've, I've never been to an LFC game, though I have been to an LA Galaxy game. And, but I love that stadium. That stadium looks incredible. Oh, it's and, awesome. 
one thing I love about the MLS and to also the NWSL is there is something about soccer that really jives well with like thriving young people in urban areas. And I think mm-hmm. that you clearly, clearly see that. And I think Atlanta, Atlanta the Atlanta has embraced that in a way that, that no other Atlanta sports teams has in a way that make you, makes you feel like you're a part of something that's growing rather than a part of something that people are desperately trying to hang on to. Theoretically, he says, on election day in Georgia. There you go. And oh, one more other reason why it would be awesome for LAFC to win a championship. One of the owners is Will Ferrell. Who doesn't want to see Will Ferrell host a real trophy and not one from one of his movies, huh? Adam McKay, apparently. But other than Adam McKay. (laughs) (laughs) He said it, not me. (laughs) All right, Will, let's go on to our next topic. The biggest change we want to see happen in the world. Got the first one under my belt. I can tell you I already learned a lot. Things I would do a little bit differently. I thought our guys competed. I thought our, our bench gave us a great punch. I mean, you know, I drew up a play and I didn't draw it clear enough, and I called a timeout and let's get it right. I'm grateful for the opportunity. I feel like I'm just a a flower that's uh, getting great roots, Um, but far from blooming, far from blooming. That, my friends, was the sound of Becky Hammond after she became the first female head coach in NBA history. Hammond, who joined San Antonio Spurs in 2014, owns a number of related milestones. She was the first female assistant coach in the NBA and the first woman to be named head coach of a summer league team. But on that fateful night in 2020, when the permanent head coach of the Spurs, Greg Popovich, was ejected, surprise, surprise, he turned to Hammond and indicated that she could take over the reins. The Spurs' 121-107 loss to the Lakers officially went on Popovich's record, but Hammond's big moment nonetheless generated an outpouring of reaction after the game, including from LeBron James, who said, quote, It's a beautiful thing just to hear her barking out calls, barking out sets. She's very passionate about the game, so congrats to her, congrats to our league, end quote. Will, in this segment, we're presenting the change we want to see most in the world, and this is mine. Hammond is going to coach in the WNBA next season. So that currently leaves six female assistant coaches on staffs of NBA franchises. I say it's time for an NBA team to hire a woman as a full-time coach. And here's why it's so important to me. It's fucking time. (laughs) That's it. It's time. It's time to stop pretending as if you need a penis in order to coach men. (laughs) Because you simply (laughs) do not. Every single one of us know that there are female basketball players from a skill set perspective who are every bit as good as a lot of the NBA players. They can shoot, they can dribble, run offenses. They, they get, like, there is nothing about gender that dictates whether or not you can play the game at a high level or if you can understand and even coach the game in a high level. I would say that if the WNBA can have former male players from the NBA be coaches in their leagues, then that street should be able to go both ways. And I am a, you know, Detroit Piston guy, and I love what Bill Beer was able mm. to do in that league. And I'm a Lakers fan, and I love seeing, like, you know, Michael Cooper, and, well, I don't actually love seeing <laughs> what, <laughs> what Derek Fisher did in the league. Uh-huh. Nonetheless... <laughs> He got the opportunity to do it. He did get the opportunity. He got the opportunity to do it. So if it makes sense that men can teach women and coach women and lead them to championships, the only reason, the only feasible reason I can think of 
why the reverse wouldn't be true isn't from a skill set or an understanding or capability, but in an opportunity perspective. And that there's this perception, probably, that men would not listen to women, particularly in high-stakes situation when there's a championship on the line, there's 15 seconds in the fourth quarter, and this woman's trying to tell them what to do to win a championship. I get the outside perspective, but can we just label that outside perspective for what it is? Misogyny? <laughs> Sexism? <laughs> like, like, why are we pretending? And while it is true, I pointed out Becky Hammond as an example of someone who could possibly do this job. I'm not going to go through the process of listing all the women because there are a ton of them. And it's bullshit that we're trying to pretend that Becky's the only one. <laughs> and it's bullshit that Don doesn't get an opportunity to even interview for any head coaching jobs, despite the fact that all she does is win. And I'm speaking of Dawn Staley. All she does is win. Every single stop, whether she is a coach, assistant coach, or a player, she's got championships and gold medals everywhere she's gone. And I don't think I haven't read anywhere where she's made it to a second interview coaching men at any level. And I just think that's ridiculous. Because we all know, Will, that if a man had her resume, certainly interviews would have been the least of the things that that person could have expected to come their way. The only reason why it's not is because of gender. And so the NBA has been the league that's been willing more than others to, I don't want to say make statements, but I would rather say knock down obstacles, knock down the barriers, whether it's having openly gay players on the court, whether it's having females coaching on the sidelines. They've always been willing to take that next step, not just to be presentational or that representation matters, and it does, but because it's also just smart business. And it's also, it's about expanding your talent pool so that when it is time to look for a new coach for your favorite team, that you're not being limited by gender. Because there could be a brilliant coach out there who happens to be female, just waiting for an opportunity to get a hold of a team that doesn't understand proper defensive schemes. <laughs> and she just may be the person who can get through to them. But if all you see is gender and you don't see the mind and the experience and the communications and the and the, the ability to handle a pressure in high stakes situations, then you're really limiting your ability as a franchise to maximize what you could be. So the change I want to see is a woman not just go through the interview process, but actually get hired and have a chance to fail or succeed like all of her male counterparts. And I'll just add one final thing. And this is not a shot at Terry Stotts as a head coach mm -hmm. because I think he's done a fine job. But God damn it, he's done a fine job a, a lot of times. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we all know there are plenty of coaches that have gotten lots of opportunities over and over and over again. Isn't it about time that we give that same opportunity to someone who hasn't had it before? Again, not to be PC, not to be woke, but because... Terry's had a chance to prove he can win a championship. Why not give Becky an opportunity? A real opportunity. Why not? Becky Hammond going to the WNBA is great, and she's doing great. She's already changed that team, right? Like she's or like her style has already changed that team, the team she's coaching. So there's nothing wrong with her going to coach in the WNBA. It's great. 
it does feel like I was kind of thinking the Spurs thing had a real opportunity of happening. And yeah. maybe it's going to require Popovich leaving. And maybe Popovich wanted to hang on longer than he wanted. But that felt, the fact that that felt like, wow, I'm kind of surprised that she's going to the WNBA. I felt like the NBA opportunity might have been there for her. A, speaks to how it probably wasn't and how it's frustrating that she was farther away. But B, also the idea that like that that I think I'm not the only person that thought that. That thought like, oh, wow, that's surprising. I feel like that she would have been within in line for the NBA job. That feels in its small way a little bit of progress. The fact that this is even sort of the discussion. I would argue not just her. To me, Dawn Staley is for crying out loud. You watch Dawn Staley coach and it just like she has a charisma to her that makes you want to makes me I don't even play her sport and it makes me want to run through the wall for her like I I don't see how anyone would not want to play for Don Staley and I think that she's she's hinted in the past that she that she would be up for me I I, I it's hard to imagine getting Don Staley into an interview and not going away being like okay that person would transform everything what we're trying to do here and right. so I think that the the question is is which team is it? The thing that's frustrating about the Becky Hammond Spurs thing is it felt like that was the, like the Knicks, frankly, the Knicks were looking for a coach a couple of years ago and Hammond's name came up. Is I think that she would have done a great job. The question is, are the Knicks really willing to like, someone's got to be first. Right. Someone's going to be first. And it felt like the Spurs were a good opportunity for that to be first. An ideal opportunity. One of the most legendary coaches of all time. His most trusted assistant. He's the one that gives her the reins over. Like Tim Duncan was on the bench, I believe, for right. that game. Like, the, like the, that felt like an ideal opportunity. It doesn't mean it's not over. She can still do it. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with coaching the WNBA. But it does feel like that was being set up as a really, really good opportunity that you hope is still there. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And. You know, I agree with you. It did feel like the Spurs were going to be their franchise. And there was a period in which I was hoping the Lakers would be their franchise because obviously Jeannie Buss is in control of the uh, of that franchise. But it shouldn't be, the onus shouldn't solely be on the woman who's in the position of hiring Fiery to hire women. Right. Like it, It's her it's responsibility, like, right. 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 It, it, it's not her responsibility to constantly be the one that's, making sure that everyone has a fair opportunity. It should be the responsibility of the entire league. And I'm not saying that it's a, you know, a conscientious, you know, group conspiracy that all the owners have got together and said, we'll never hire a woman. Got it, got it, got it, got it. No, I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that there needs to be a new way of thinking about the hiring and firing process. And they need to start asking themselves, why aren't we cherry picking from some of the most successful female coaches, just like we cherry pick from some of the most successful male coaches. They need to ask themselves, why are we allowing men to walk off the court and just start coaching at the highest mm. level right away yeah. without going through any of the processes of being an assistant coach or a coordinator or anything like that because we recognize that they were great players and maybe just maybe they'll be great coaches. Why don't we have that same sort of mentality when it comes to women? Like take Candace Parker, for instance, right? Why aren't people trying to woo her off the set of, of TNT and say, you know what? We've watched you school the boys over and over again on offensive schemes. Can you come and help our guys in real time? Why not? She's won everywhere. <laughs> College, the Olympics, pros. What, what, what are we waiting for here? Oh, that's right. She's a she. <laughs> I think the 
route for this are going to be teams like the Spurs in all sports, the ones that are generally on the vanguard of stuff. You look at look at Major League Baseball. Alyssa Nacken is one of is the only female coach in Major League Baseball. Who's she a coach for? The San Francisco Giants, generally considered one of the most innovative teams in sports. The ones that that are, will are trying all sorts of different new things that a lot of people have not tried and have succeeded accordingly. You know, a lot, a lot of people be like, "Wow, how did the Giants win 107 games last year?" They're trying stuff that nobody else is trying, and they're looking for talent and looking for an edge every single place they can get it. It's not surprising that they would be the place that we would have the the be the first place to hire a female coach. And I think you'll see more and more success like that. It's frustrating because like. On one hand, I want to say like, well, you know what? Success begats success. And you'll see someone succeed and they'll get there and they'll get so on. But I that may be putting more faith in the system than I perhaps should, <laughs> to be entirely honest. Yeah, because there's already been a lot of winning and still not a lot of hiring. So what about you, Will? What do you want to see? My thing is 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 kind of a personal one. And probably the rest of the podcast are going to be a little bit personal one. Um, uh, there's probably been no uh, a bigger flashpoint uh, in the world of sports, really, for the last almost – decade now uh, than standing for the anthem and what you do during the anthem at a sporting event. And I was writing for Sports on Earth the day that Colin Kaepernick, that the reporter for NFL.com noticed that Colin Kaepernick was going into the going into the clubhouse during a, the national anthem and asked him about it. And, he, and that launched basically everything we've seen that's happened happened since then. And I wrote at the time, I said, why well, is, uh, it is so brave. It is very powerful to see an athlete, uh, to, uh, to stand behind their convictions in the way that I feel like we've been waiting for athletes to see actually stand, to, to actually stand for their conviction. And what, and then I had a little side note in there saying, just for what it's worth, I personally do believe in standing for the flag. And I certainly, and, and for me, it is not because I think there's a thing wrong with not doing it. It's not like I look at the flag, I'm like, yay, way to go, America. We're great at everything. In fact, the opposite of that. What to me, I, listen, I was raised in a military family. And I don't, and I hate it when people say stuff like that because it's often the, basically saying, well, my family is more patriotic because we're from the military. That is not, I don't think that's actually what everyone's saying. I know it's not what I'm saying. What it is, what I am saying though, is that was a ritual that was put in uh, that was instilled to me by my father and my grandfather. And when you are standing and paying attention to a sporting event for the uh, watching the flag, you are not saying America is great. America does everything awesome. We are being the most patriotic people in here. Look how awesome you are. What that flag does is it represents an ideal and perhaps an unachievable ideal, but an ideal of what this place is supposed to be. And so I have found, so I have always taken a lot of pride when I've been at a game to be able to like have that moment to look at the flag and be like, you know what? There's so much wrong with this, this country and so far to go. But like the, what we're trying, like that's the goal. That's the place we're going to get to. Uh, that's the place we're trying to get to. And progress is something that moves forward. And we're going to get there. This is a very Obama era thing, right? Progress is moving forward. We're gonna, well, the, the, the arm of history is long, but bends towards justice. And I've had a hard time doing that <laughs> over the last uh, seven years. And you know, basically during the Trump administration, uh, I found myself dreading Literally, I I love going to sporting events. Like I know people just like to watch things on TV now. I love going to games. You love going to games. We've always talked. Like to me, it's something I think. I think in an age where we can see everything on television, I think going to games is important. It's one of my actual favorite things in the world to do. And I have found myself dreading that moment when we got to stand for the national anthem. I, I found myself dreading it because, it because it makes me think about things. And we've talked about the intersection of sports and politics and so on and, and how these things can't be in, uh, taken away from each other. And of course, it's true. But like, again, we've also talked about how sometimes I just want to go yell at a game for a while. And I and I wanted to not, you know, think about the fact that Donald fucking Trump was the president when I went to a sport 
morning of it, and the and the flag. What, what all of a sudden that flag no longer represented an ideal to me. It represented to what we were now and something that was really terrible and have often been terrible, but no, all of a sudden our ideals felt farther and farther away. I find myself still struggling with this today. Even in the, I remember the first game I went to after Biden was elected, I was like, okay, I'm feeling better today. I got it today and I've struggled kind of, uh, and, and then we've seen what's kind of happened the last couple of years. The idea of, listen, our country has so many problems and has had so many problems. And that flag represents so much more than just good ideals. Like it represents a lot of bad things as well. But I want, I love this country. <laughs> I actually legitimately love it and I want it to be good. And, and I find it frustrating, again, maybe it's because it's an election day in Georgia and this is on my mind, but I find it very frustrating to see the a side that uh, uh, uh makes standing for that flag into something that is not, turns it into something like a, a patriotic dick measuring contest or a uh, who cares more. That's not what it's about. It is frustrating for me as someone that loves this country and loves this flag to have the idea of criticizing this country and wanting it to be better seen somehow as unpatriotic. And so uh, my little, my goal, my hope, my wish as a personal thing in the world of sports that I want to see, I want to feel that been toward justice ideal when the national anthem is played before games, before every game that I ever go to, and not this. My God, what uh, can I? What are we doing here? What's happening? <laughs> happening here? And uh, and Megan, maybe I'm emotional because it's uh, it's it's election day here, and and kind of so much is going to be happening on in Georgia and really around the country over the next two, and who knows how long it's going to be till we get to talk about this stuff together. So uh, I, I, it's something that I've been trying to figure out what to write about, but it's something that I that I find myself confronted with literally every time I go to a game, and I haven't really quite wrestled with it just yet. You know, I'm I'm so glad that you. You know, you talked about this subject matter because I, too, love this country. And, you know, I've been I've been a national columnist now for certainly at least half, if not most of my career, you know, started nationally with the, with CNN. I've written piece for ABC and now I'm with the Los syndicated columnist. I've had columns with the Los Angeles Times. So, you know, anyone who's followed my career knows how I feel about this country, both good and bad. Because I've, I've held nothing back. But the thing that's frustrated me most about all of this, and I didn't write this piece in the heart of the Kaepernick conversation, just because I didn't think that it was the time to do so. Mm -hmm. um, because there were so many aspects to it. Um, and I didn't want to spend my entire life writing about it. <laughs> but now that you've brought it up, yeah. I just want to say, if, if you are an NFL owner, and you have homeless veterans in the cities in which your teams are located, but you're pissed off because black players are nailing during the national anthem because that's disrespecting the military and disrespecting the flag and it's anti-patriotic and all that bullshit. Fuck you. That's, I mean, yeah. fuck you. <laughs> because yeah. you're just using this conversation to grandstand. You aren't really doing all you can to help the military and to, to protect patriotism and all of that. Because if you were, all that money that you have certain, I'm not asking you to end homelessness everywhere, but seriously, why do we have so many homeless veterans in cities where NFL teams are located? If the NFL is so patriotic. Yeah. They say, they say they want to support the troops, but they don't actually want to support. Right. Troops. Right. I, I felt <laughs> the exact same way covering president Trump during his administration. He likes to brag about how much fucking money he has. And all the buildings all over the world with his name on it. 
And I couldn't find a single fucking building with his name on it that was to help homelessness with among veterans or mental illness for that, for that matter. Where is the Donald J. Trump hospital for mental, you know, mentally ill veterans who are still suffering from Vietnam? I had four uncles serve in the military. I've heard the stories. I've seen the fallout. I've had uncles pass away struggling from the things they're exposed to both emotionally and mentally, as well as physically, while fighting to defend this country. And they proudly defended the country. And then I watched the country sort of kind of say thank you. I watched them struggle to get the care that they needed. I watched them struggle to make sure that they didn't end up homeless. I watched the struggle of them trying to pay their bills once they got back, even as I was an adult watching them struggle and struggle and struggle. And yet they were still very, very proud of their service. And I'm sitting here going, we can give $40 billion to Ukraine and their struggle every other week. Why do we still have so much pain and suffering with our veterans on these streets? And how in the fuck are we celebrating, you know, the patriotism of the NFL when they are the most powerful league and they probably could just go and say, you know what, we're just going to end this ourselves. Fuck the government. But they don't do that, do they, Will? Yeah, and let's remember, yeah. let's not forget, by the way, why was Kaepernick act? Why was he doing the physical act of kneeling? Because he went to work to talk to a veteran. Yes, <laughs> they went to talk to a veteran because yes. he was not going to come out at all for the national anthem. He was going to sit down, and and he talked. He was like, you know what? And what did the veteran say? Very, something very similar to what my father said to me and what my, his father said to him. When you are sit, when you are out there for that for, for that national anthem, it is the ideal. You are honoring the people who have fought for the ideal. And so he altered his protest. Not that it gave him, not that anybody gave a shit. Right. <laughs> and not that anybody even listened to that. The fact that like the kneeling itself is in direct response to the in, the input from a veteran. How often is that even discussed in this yeah, part of the story? <laughs> like it never even comes up. Right. And that's why he was dealing in the first place. And so that to me, like that is one of the things that's so frustrating is to see this co-opted. Like, I'm sorry, but I can, I actually do consider it like a sacred time to hear the national anthem before games. And I don't mean like sacred, like it is the America. We must pay attention to America and follow all that America says. Right. It is a moment to reflect. It is a moment to think about what this country has been, what it could be, what you want it to be, where it is. And, and, and to realize that, yes, we are free to be able to have this moment of enjoying this game. And there are people who fought for, for our ability to be able to do that and need to continue. And people are still fighting for our ability to continue to have that and many other freedoms. The idea that that moment is to look around and be like, who's needs? Right. Who's kneeling? Who's not as patriotic as I am? It has turned something that I have always considered a place to ponder, a time to ponder, a time to think, and a time to reflect has turned it into the same bullshit that everything else is right now. And, yeah. uh, and that is really, really frustrating. The only other thing I would say about the national anthem during games is that I always want to see who messes up the Rockets' red glare. <laughs> because uh, yeah. that, those notes sneak up on you, dog. Oh, yeah, it's hard. I'm not, I couldn't do it. Have you ever, you're a big enough celebrity. Has anyone ever asked you to sing? Has anyone ever asked uh, you to do it? I have been asked to sing, not because I'm a big enough celebrity, but I think because the people secretly wanted to watch me try to sing The Rock is Red Glare. And I am <laughs> not going to be seen in public trying to get those notes. Oh, they man, sneak up right. on you, my friend. Yeah. It modulates, and then all of a sudden, bam, you're hitting notes that you didn't even know were possible. <laughs> I feel like Francis Scott Key, maybe an unrealistic 
musician and craftsman because I feel like that's it's a test. It's a test. Oh, oh it's, it's a, a test. Total, it yeah. woos you in with the yeah. nice low. Yeah. Oh, say can you see? You're like going, oh, I got yeah. this. Yeah, and next yeah. thing you know, rockets red glare come and yeah. bam. Yeah, you look like an idiot. So yeah, it's uh, I, I've never been asked, and uh, I can't I can't do any worse than Roseanne did. <laughs> yeah, you could. <laughs> I can probably yeah, yeah, do worse yeah, than right. Roseanne. All right. When we return, we'll talk about the event we hope will take place in our personal lives one day. For me, hint, it involves the greatest team in baseball. Go Dodgers. No, currently. The Long Game with Ellie and Leach. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Okay, LZ, we're back. Breeze hits it in the air to center. We will see you tomorrow night. That was the legendary moment in the bottom of the 11th inning when the St. Louis Cardinals' David Fries won Game 6 of the 2011 World Series with an unforgettable bomb to clinch a 10-9 victory in one of the greatest World Series games ever played. My beloved Cardinals went on to win Game 7 the following evening, but sadly, we're going on Year 11, and we have not won one since. LZ, this segment has been a personal wish that we'd like to see granted before we speak again in this podcast, Life or Another. And so mine is this, I want my St. Louis Cardinals to win a World Series in my son's lifetime. So to give you an idea about this, to give you the sense of this, here is a little story. I lived in New York City for the 2011 World Series, and we had a bar. We had, there was a Cardinals bar called Foley's. It's a since closed down. It's a famous baseball bar, and it's closed down during the pandemic. But it was, it was, it was known as a Cardinals bar. And like Andy Cohen always came by for the games. John Hamm always came by for the games. Like it was a big, like, and it, they were always left alone because they were Cardinals fans. It was a place for Cardinal fans. It was a place that I put together with some friends of mine in 2006, and it grew to be a huge, huge thing where all the Cardinal fans would gather for all the playoff games. Well, in 2011, the Cardinals had this very famous, incredible, they weren't even expected to make the playoffs that year. They went on this incredible run. And so I was at this bar every single night. Also going on at this time, my wife was eight and one half months pregnant <laughs> with, her, <laughs> with what would ultimately be our first son, William. And so she uh, she was very patient, also very happy to just go to sleep very early uh, when she was that pregnant. She was very happy, perfectly happy to have me go to this Cardinals bar all the, all the time for all of these late night games. But it got to be game seven. It got to be game seven after the incredible game six we discussed earlier. And she's like, you know what? 
she, my, my wife has a very good eye. She's an interior designer. She also is a good photographer. She's like, I'm going to come and take pictures. I just want to see everybody. Just, just see what everyone's like on this great last night. So she came and took a bunch of pictures and, and, and she was about to give birth. And then it got to like the sixth inning. The Cardinals were up 4-1 or 4-2 at the time. And she was getting a little tired. So I took her outside, got her in a cab. But the problem was, is the bar was packed with like hundreds and hundreds of people to where there was no way that we could get out throughout the regular way. So the owner of the bar, because I organized the, the event, uh, because I organized the event, said, I, we have like a back way. So they shuffled me out and her in the back way, got her out. Somehow word got out because we shuffled out like, oh, my God, Willie's his wife's gone into labor. She's gone to labor. Oh my God, she's gone to labor. And so I'm like, oh my God, she's in labor. She's in labor. So then they look like two innings later. I'm sitting in my seat. She's gone. <laughs> and I'm sitting in my seat. And to this day, there are people that still believe that she went into labor, but because it was game seven of the World Series, because whatever, labor takes a while, right? right? She'll be fine. Uh, that I came back and watched them win game seven of the World Series. So the reason I tell that story is A, because I like to remind people of when the Cardinals won the World Series. But B, my son was born roughly three weeks later. It has always been a fear of mine. He loves the Cardinals probably more, as much, if not more, than I love the Cardinals. It has always been a fear that with my son, born three weeks after the Cardinals won the World Series. And my son, who is listening to this podcast and is super, super sad that it's ending, by the way. But more to the point... I've always had this nightmare that he's going to be like 94 years old, <laughs> like an old Cubs fan, right? And be like, like, ah, uh, the Cardinals won their last world. The Cardinals in 90, in 83 years are like the most tortured franchise in sports. And they're like the Cubs were before. And there's my 94 year old son being like, my father cursed me with this terrible team that won the world series literally three weeks before I was born and never won another again. So all I request, listen, I will also be happy if the Cardinals in the World Series to be as clear as possible. The Cardinals are obviously an obsession of mine, but to see my son, I do not want my son to be that one that they're writing the names on the wall like Cubs fans did on Waveland Avenue for their grandparents that never saw a title. Get the Cardinals one World Series in my son's lifetime so I did not curse him to a life of being a Cubs fan. <laughs> that is a great story. <laughs> Especially the part when you shoved your wife into a taxi with a cup full of ice and said, just keep chewing You're them. fine. You're fine. You're fine. You're fine. You're fine. I'll see you in the mean, hospital. <laughs> It'll be fine. Like, like, what's that? Uh, cab driver, uh, just have her drive around a circle for a while. Game's got like two more hours. Yeah, roll down the window. She just needs more air. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. great. <laughs> and you know what's funny? I, too, have a New York story as my wish. Mm -hmm. Good. <laughs> so I was living in New York. I was recently hired to be the uh, number two at the time for the NBA department for mm -hmm. ESPN, the magazine, which basically was a dream job for someone like me who loved the league and loves to play ball and young single gay guy in New York. Mm -hmm. I'll just let your mind wander wherever your mind may want to go. You didn't have to go to Bristol. Like you were able to do all that in New York. Yes. <laughs> ah, it was glorious. Oh, did I mention that I was less than 10% body fat at the time? All right. Anyway, <laughs> I was very successful in New York. Um, <laughs> no doubt. Well earned. <laughs> but one of the things that I always treasured was the day that I saw The Devil Wears Prada at Union Square. Hmm. It was at the little movie theater near, near, mm -hmm. near uh, Union Square in yep, the city. Yep. And I went to go see the Devil Wears Prada because Meryl Streep was in it. And I would watch Meryl Streep read the phone book, yeah. like, backwards, because <laughs> I think she's just so freaking amazing. Yes. And she's particularly and great in that movie, yes. It's a fantastic movie. I would put its soundtrack right there next to Top Gun's soundtrack <laughs> okay. in the sense that 
Top Gun, the original, has a very definitive 80s sort of sound, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But when you go back and listen to some of those songs, you don't feel overly cheesy because they're really good songs that hold up. Well, Dangerous The song. Devil Wears Prada has a very 90s, you know, sort of sounding soundtrack. Early 2000, late 90s sound. And when you go back and listen to some of those songs, they really hold up. So it has like a, a classic soundtrack, if you will. It has all the top you know, stars, Stanley Tucci, Meryl Streep, as I mentioned before, and Hathaway, who also has an Oscar, mm-hmm. uh, Emily Blunt, who's been nominated for Oscars, and she's absolutely oh, yeah. amazing. And the idiot from Entourage. Don't forget the idiot from Entourage. And the idiot from Entourage, <laughs> whose name shall not be mentioned. <laughs> yes. Adrian. Um, <laughs> so it, it has, like, stars. It's got great music. It's got the fashion. But there was one particular scene that, when I saw it, really resonated with me. And when it's the moment in the film, and yes, I'm going to spoil it because if you hadn't seen a film that's <laughs> over 10 years old, yeah. it's not you needing any you. spoiler alert. It's you just needing to fucking watch the movie. All yes. right. So <laughs> there's in the car and Meryl Streep looks at her protege, if you will, played by Anne Hathaway. And they're having a conversation about ambition. I never thought I would say this, Andre. But I really... I see a great deal of myself in you. You can see beyond what people want and what they need, and you can choose for yourself. I don't think I'm like that. And Meryl Streep basically is saying you have to shit on people to get what you want, and you understand that, and you and I are alike in that way. Because throughout the whole movie, Meryl Streep is just shitting on people to maintain power, right? And Annie, though innocently at first, but as the movie goes on, you realize that she's not naive to what she's doing. She's making excuses for what she's doing. And she, too, is beginning to, you know, be a little uh, shitty to people as she's going up the ladder. And it's in that moment she realizes there's a choice, that she can continue to be selfish and shitty to people to build her career in this industry or she can go back to being the person that she was and try to build her career in the image that makes her feel proud when she walks by the mirror and so my hope my wish will is that we get to see a sequel i want to see the (laughs) devil wears prada too because i want to know does she regret her decision all these years later does she regret not following down the path of you know, shitting on people, building your own career, becoming rich and powerful, influential, being feared, but not necessarily respected. Or is she happy with wherever she landed economically, wherever she landed in the the paradigm of fame and influence? And is she happy with the fact that she can at least walk by the mirror and not have to look away because she didn't treat people shitty to get to where she's at? I want to see a sequel because I know what the answer is for me. Because I made a similar decision. And while, you know, you and some people may think that, you know, oh, you're famous, you're a celebrity, blah, blah, blah. I'm acutely aware of the fact that I turned my back on a lot of shit that I could have pursued if I had behaved differently. And left a lot of money on the table, probably, if I had behaved and chosen a different route. And even though this episode of my life was years ago, it's a question that I'm constantly checking up on. Are you a good person? Are you respected as opposed to feared? 
Are you helping others climb and get to their dreams? Are you the Annie that left Meryl Streep in the car? Or are you the Annie that Meryl Streep says, you remind me of myself? And I would like to think I'm still the guy that left her in the car. And I just want to see Annie and see if she's happy that she left those opportunities behind to be the person that she is. I got to tell you, I kind of feel like you are the sequel. To what? The Wars product. Yeah, because you, I'm the you, sequel. Then yeah, I need a better wardrobe. No, because you turned out great. You like I, I I totally understand the metaphor you're talking about, and I totally understand the decisions that people have had to make. The media industry was about to go through some pretty dramatic changes for that for that whole magazine, so that might have affected how she felt about her changes one way or the other. But right. I do feel like you know, I mean, listen, we're gonna get emotional about this when we do our this week in sports history thing. But like, I would argue one of the many many fun things about not just doing the show with you, but getting to know you as like a friend is knowing listen you work you've worked this industry for a long time i've worked in this industry for a long time i'm the ambitious ambitious person you're an ambitious person we're ambitious people that's why we're doing stuff constantly one of the many things i love about working with you is that you make shit like i make shit like we make stuff we do things we say yes to things i always joke that my career is a little bit of like the old improv joke the whole improv strategy is to say yes and. Like no matter, when someone comes with an idea, you say yes and, and then you build on it. Yep. I feel like that's generally my thought for everything in this industry is like, I'll just make stuff. I'll just, I'll, I'll see if I'm good at it. I'll give it a shot and I'll work with people I really like working with. And for me, one of the things that I think has been really enjoyable about working with you is it is obvious that like we are both, we are ambitious people who also don't hate ourselves. <laughs> and, that is, and I say that, I say that half jokingly, but like there is a certain point that I think a lot of people have made decisions to be like, you know what? I don't really, this, I don't, I don't know if I love this, but this will be successful for me. And I, this will work for me. This will, this will increase my clout. This will give me uh, mm-hmm. more, whatever this, I'll get paid more and so on. And that's fine. Whatever. I, I wouldn't say it's fine, but more power to you. Everybody makes decisions, but I kind of decided pretty early on in my career that uh, if I was going to make decisions just to make a bunch of money or to try to personally enrich myself, I would have chosen an entirely different career from this in the first place. <laughs> and I would have become like a banker or I like, could have been like a banker. Like, what do we get into this for other than to just be real and do things for the right reasons? And so it has been one of the many reasons it's been so fun to work with you is because I know that you've made those decisions. You've gotten out of the car. You've gotten out, out of the car. I and, got out of the car, but I'm 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 gonna keep it real with you because that's what we do on this show. Yeah. Every now and then I look back to see if the car is still there. Yeah. yeah Every I now understand. and again I look back and see if it got too far away. Can I still yeah. catch it if I wanted to ride? <laughs> I understand. You know, understand and that. then you know I have to go through that process over and over again because, you know, I initially thought like in my mid 30s, early 40s, that you didn't have to keep maintenance on these sort of decisions. You know, that once you sort of made this kind of career choice, that you would just find peace with it and then you would move forward. And what I've learned is that it's okay to second guess yourself. It's okay to reevaluate. It's the regret that hurts. It's not the reevaluation because the reevaluation is actually where you really begin to extrapolate the lessons that you're trying to learn, right? You have to process it. I think the issue is about regret. And sometimes people don't like to look look back, not because they're afraid of what they'll see, but because they're afraid of how they may feel. And one of those feelings that's looming there is the feeling of regret. And I had some regrets. Absolutely. Once you start seeing the reports of what some of my former colleagues were making, 
<laughs> I was like going, yeah, maybe I should have just stuck to sports. <laughs> but I understand. at the same time, like cool shit would happen. I was at an airport, man. And I forgot what city was in. Might have been Burbank. It wasn't a large airport or whatever. But I was like rushing through trying to make my flight because, as you know, because we're friends now, I'm basically late for everything except for games. For some reason, <laughs> I know I need to be ready for the game. Everything else from church on, yeah, you know, I get there. Yeah. You know, God's what, like millions of years old? Yeah, he knows I'm coming. He's telling he knows you I'll be there, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> so I'm going through this airport and this police officer comes up to me and says, hey, brother, I miss seeing you on ESPN. Love seeing you on CNN. Love your work. Love hearing your perspective. Please keep doing what you're doing. Now, let me just say the cop that came up to me might have been like a 50-year-old balding white guy with a belly. Not necessarily someone I was expecting to listen to me, recognize me, let alone appreciate the work that I'm trying to do. And I always see this as God sending angels to keep me encouraged. It was just another way of re him reminding me that, you know, you're on the right path and that you may not always feel that way. You may not always see confirmation. You may not always hear confirmation. The pieces you write may not go viral. You may not think people are reading them, blah, blah, blah. All of this, all the self-doubt. And you know, you get it. Of course. A lot of self-doubt would creep into you, especially when you're a writer. Especially yeah. when you're a writer. The self-doubt is, is, is incredible because every single day you sit in front of a fucking blank screen By and you're yourself. supposed to say something <laughs> worth reading. Yeah. Every single time. And the pressure is on to say something worth reading. And every single writer knows what I'm talking about. And sometimes you don't know if you said something worth reading and you have to tell yourself, press in and keep going and just have faith that whatever you just said was worth reading. And every now and then God will send you an angel that says, yes, that was worth mm -hmm. reading. And that day that officer did that for me, whoever he was, he made me feel like the decision I made to get out of the car was the right decision. But sometimes when, you know, when I get a bill or something, I'm like, going, <laughs> fuck, man. If I was so-and-so, yeah. <laughs> if yeah. I had done so-and-so, if I had pretended there wasn't any racism or homophobia to talk about, if I had pretended it was okay that player came back from suspension so soon, if I had pretended that that owner didn't say X, Y, and Z and meant it that way, if I had pretended as if it's okay that you know networks are run by all cisgender, heterosexual white men over 40, if I had pretended all those things were okay, maybe I would have had more money and I wouldn't have noticed that bill. But I didn't make more money. And I do notice that, Bill. But I'm not afraid to walk by the mirror. I'm not afraid to walk down MLK Boulevard. I'm not afraid to be in Boys Town. I'm not afraid to have my people come up to me and check me. And I love that part of it more than the money. So, yeah, I got out of the car. I still look back to see where the car is. <laughs> Sometimes I think about jumping back in the car. Then I just hail a cab and go my own way. And I want to just know if Annie feels good about it, too. So, damn it. Producers, if you're listening, give <laughs> us what we want. A sequel to The Devil Wears Prada. We got questions, damn it. We got questions. Nope. LZ's a sequel. I got this all figured out already. <laughs> and now, Will, it's time for This Week in Sports History, where we break down an event from the past through the lens of 2022. <laughs> Oh, 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 oh,
Now, Will, usually we start off this segment with an audio clip from an event from the past, and then we provide listeners with our entertaining and informative perspective about a famous moment in sports history. We break it down long game style, but not today. Mm-mm. Today, we're not going to go back in time. Instead, we're going to be staying in the moment, this moment, because this is the last segment we're recording of our podcast. So I just want to take a moment to first say goodbye, but not farewell, and to thank you for an amazing eight months. Not long enough to have a baby, but long <laughs> enough to be pregnant and be shoved in a taxi by Will when the, <laughs> when the Cardinals are playing Game 7. That's a big um, game. I love working with you, my man. You are a friend, but not just you. The entire Long Game team are now friends. And I know this is not the end. And somehow, you know, we're going to find a way to get the band back together again. So I just want to say not goodbye because, you know, Goodbye sounds all sad and but more like see you later. You know, yes. none of us knew each other, right? I mean, yeah, you I knew, and you, I, we knew we, each other's work, but yeah, we never we knew each other's right. work, right, but right. we didn't know each other. And we didn't know Pierre and Marshall and Roz or Mark or Megan. We didn't know anybody. Yeah. And we have two Megans. We didn't know either one of them. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we came together, one, because there was money involved. That's not right. front. <laughs> Don't think any of us would be doing this for free. I would, but I'm sad, <laughs> lonely, that's, that's kind of empty, sad. and need to fill time. But we also came together because we thought it was a worthwhile venture to try to have these conversations on a higher plane about sports, not because we thought we were smarter than everybody else and not because we thought we had all the answers, because oftentimes we ended the podcast with more questions than answers, <laughs> but because we thought it was worth having the conversations to begin with. And let's just see where these conversations go. And in a lot of ways, it's a lot like a marriage, you know, or like the early stages of any relationship where you hope for the best, you kind of prepare for the worst, and usually you're somewhere in between for every relationship and every business venture and every partnership. And, you know, yeah. Do I wish that we could have had 12,000 episodes of The Long Game? Well, absolutely. I love working with you. I love working with everybody that's part of our team. I think we were just beginning to get our groove. But I also know that in our industry, there are no real goodbyes. I can't tell you how many people I keep bumping into or working with over the years. And I know that you and I, and quite possibly many of the people that we've worked with at The Recount, we're just going to end up finding each other again in a different incarnation. You know, and I'll, I'll just say quickly, um, I want to give a shout out to my girlfriend, Amna Nawaz, as an example of this. Amna and I didn't know each other very much the way that you and I didn't know each other. And we were thrown together by ABC. Um, fast forward to 2016, and we're covering this election cycle together. And it's exhilarating and it's historic. And we know we've done some really good work. We know in our bones that we really kicked ass. But our partnership didn't last. ABC kind of split us up. We both kind of went our separate ways, but we always stayed friends. And, you know, last week, Omna was named the uh, one of the new um, permanent anchors for PBS's NewsHour. And I watched this woman struggle after ABC, trying to find her footing, trying to find a place to be, being told she wasn't good enough, being told no one wanted to see her, being told that, you know, yeah, you're great, but nothing right now. And she just kept plucking away. And one day she hits me up and says, hey, I'm one of the moderators for the presidential debate. Are you free? (laughs) 
And to be there and to watch her glow and shine was just absolutely amazing. And I was so proud of her because she stayed the path and she stayed true to herself. And even though we haven't had a chance to fully work together yet, we've had had chances to work together in segments on PBS over the years since those days together at ABC. And she's doing great things, and I'm so proud of her and so happy for her. And I feel the exact same way about you, Will. I don't know if we're going to end up hosting something together again, but I know I'm going to be in your corner, cheery, Rudy, celebrating. And who knows, one day you may text me and say, hey, I'm hosting the Emmys. Are you free? And I'm going to say, nah, bitch, I'm going to New Kids in the Block concert. Have fun. No, I won't say that. I'm going to be there to support you, of course. After New I, Kids in the Block concert. Of course, understood. understood of course, of course, understood. understood. I do feel like I'm less likely to host Emmys than you, but I understand that your point is taken. It's funny, uh, you know, obviously we know each other, we've worked for a long time, but I always do remember, we've discussed this before, our first conversation was the day that Tom Brady visited the White House for Joe yeah. Biden. And we just got on the phone and you were in P-Town, if memory serves me correctly at the time. Yeah. So, I was being uh, to, super gay. So to have gotten your attention, to be honest, I felt quite <laughs> impressed. And, <laughs> and so we just sat and like talked as if we had known each other for 30 years and not just about Tom Brady and Joe Biden, but like we instantly understood the concept of this show and really the kind of the concept of what we, of what we're talking about in sports. We are people that love sports. And yeah. I do think that is important. I think that's a key thing that has always kind of maybe separated this show from some other shows is that we truly, truly love this stuff while still knowing all the things that are wrong with it and trying to want them to be better. Well, one of the many, many things that I like about you is it's something that I believe that we share. We are not cynics. <laughs> like I am not a cynical person and this business is full of cynical people and that's fine, whatever. It's This business gives you a lot of reasons to be cynical. Yeah. I totally understand why people would, would be cynical. I don't think it's, there, it's some monstrous thing, but to like keep that love, to keep that joy of sports, to want to pick apart the things that are wrong with it because you want it to be better because you deeply, deeply care about it is something that, that I really admire about you and I I always remember Roger Ebert is one of my big writing heroes. He had this great, someone asked him, they said, so like what other critics do you read? Uh, and he talked about Stanley Kaufman with, for the Washington Post. And he said, the thing about Stanley Kaufman is every time I read something of his and he disagrees with me, I start thinking, oh shit, I'm wrong, aren't I? <laughs> oh, I'm wrong, aren't I? Oh, no. And I don't always, once I investigate something, I'm like, no, what? Staley's wrong. I'm still right. But the fact that they disagree is a sign that like, okay, I better make sure I think through all the way through this, because through this, I know that they have. And for me, that is, I've joked before how I became an immediate subscriber to the Los Angeles Times uh, <laughs> in a lot of ways, because I, I love your writing and I love that you go through whether it's doing a podcast, whether it's doing television, it's all through the eyes of a writer. And it's all like you you still put in the work, you still put in the time, you still write. And whenever I'm on the wrong side of something with you, which frankly doesn't even happen as often as probably <laughs> the producers of this podcast would like, um, I always feel like, yeah, okay, I need to probably rethink that or at least make sure I know that I'm, I'm certain in what I believe. Because one of my favorite things to do to come back sometimes, when we came back from that first trip and I got to hang out with you and the crew, and I got to meet your son, and I came back and I had so many LZ stories for my wife. I was like, oh my God, here's another awesome thing. And oh my gosh, he knew he was going to be a model and he said, I'm not going to do this. And also like, you know, forget the Sidney Poitier thing. He was he was doing this other acting career. Then he said, you know what? No, I'm going to go, I'm going to go work for newspapers. And it's just, there's just like, you embrace the world with open arms in a way that is hard to do because 
the world really sucks sometimes. <laughs> the world is really, really hard. And a lot of people get really broken by that. And I understand that. So to see the joy that you have talking about sports or talking about anything, it makes me feel kind of cool that you like me. <laughs> so uh, shout out to Roz and Pierre and, and Mark and and, uh, and Marshall and the two Megans, MB1 and MB2. It's been to be able to work with everyone has been a joy, but I've decided which of them I'm going to make sure I email afterward and be like, okay, so can you at least produce something of mine today? They'll probably disagree. <laughs> but uh whether it's me hitting you up for the Emmys or whatever ends up happening in our lives, it has legitimately been a joy and an honor to get to work with you on the show. And I'm sorry we didn't get to uh, to do more of it. And hopefully we'll get to do many more in the future. Well, I am completely flattered. I, I would just say, you know, I told you this the very first time and I'll tell you this again and I'll tell people this as long as I have breath, that I was a fan of yours before we met. I'm even more of a fan now. And if you second guess after hearing me or reading me, trust, I do the same thing. <laughs> and I've always gone back and listened to our podcast episodes and, and re-listened to what you've said and go, hmm, maybe he was right. Yeah, probably not, though. Probably. Then I go, probably. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. You're, you're right. I, I do end up with probably not. <laughs> yeah, probably not. But yeah. you do yeah. make me pause. I'll, tell you, I'll take a pause. A pause is fine. Important. A pause is fine. <laughs> I'll take a pause. That, that feels like a victory. <laughs> it is a total victory. Thank you, LZ. Thank you for working on the show with me. Thank you for the crew and the staff. And thank you for the recount. I'm glad the recount was able to give us out this opportunity to do it. I'm grateful for them for letting us play in their sandbox for a while. And that's a wrap on our show. Thanks, everyone, for listening to The Long Game with LZ and Leach. The Long Game has been produced by Pierre Bienname, Megan Burney, Mark Levine, and Marshall Isaac. Music is by Gloria Tales, with some sound design by David Wilson. You'll hear from us again soon. Don't you worry. And yes, that is a threat. It is a threat and a promise. <laughs> We're behind you right now. We shall return. Get out. He's in the house. The call's coming for you inside the house. <laughs> Seriously, thank you, everyone. You'll see us soon. I promise you. But otherwise, <laughs> thanks for listening this long. And thank you, Elsie. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.